Father in heaven, uh, we need you every hour. Every hour we do need you. Or we need you now uh, to lift the scales off our eyes, uh, to show us uh, the depth of our own depravity. And we need you to take the scales off our eyes so we might see the glories of your grace. Oh Lord, do this uh, through the hearing of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Not much of a baseball player, uh, but when I was a kid, I do remember this pitcher going through the major leagues. His name was Jim Abbott. Uh, Jim Abbott uh, was a professional pitcher for 11 years. Uh, He threw a no-hitter. Uh, he was so good that he was the eighth pick in the, in the draft, and he skipped the minor leagues altogether and went straight to the bigs. It hardly ever happens. Uh, he, had, he, was, he was a very serviceable, above average pitcher. In two years, uh, he was really, really good. He came in third and sixth in the Cy Young Award, which is kind of the Pitcher of the Year Award. award. And all this sounds like, oh, what a, that's great, Jim Abbott, pitcher, nice career. But here's the kicker. He did not have a right hand. He was born without a right hand. What would happen is, is that while he was pitching the ball, he would leave his mitt lying on his, on his forearm because he didn't have a hand. And he would pitch with his left hand. And as soon as he would throw the ball, he'd slip uh, his left hand into the glove to be ready to field a grounder that might come to him. And so what would happen is a lot of uh, hitters would try to take advantage of his disability by bunting. Uh, but he was so good at, at, at getting the ball in his glove, putting the glove in between his torso and his arm, grabbing the ball out of his glove and throwing it to first base that bunting was ineffective. It's kind of a crazy story, isn't it? Jim Abbott, a guy without a right hand, being a very good professional athlete. It's not just unorthodox. One would think that it would even be a disqualification. And if you were his parent, you would think that you would try to lead your son or your daughter away from sports into something a bit less physical. You would think that they, like all parents, would want your child to grow up to be strong in every sense of the word, physically, morally, relationally. See, strong people, they lift heavy objects. They fight for what's right and they fight against what's wrong. They lead and dominate groups. And they make a difference. Strong people win admiration for their abilities and they win respect for their achievements. But the truth is, in many ways, and certainly in spiritual matters, we are all weak and inadequate. And we need to face this. See, sin has disabled us all across the board. We need to be aware of our limitations and we need to let this awareness build in us humility and a deep sense of self-distrust. See, if we would embrace our limitations, we would join a long line of biblical heroes. See, these heroes usually turn up to be the most unlikely candidates for leadership. In fact, it's almost as if God is going out of his way to find the most unlikely character he can find for the task at hand. Think about it. Abraham became a father at 99. Moses is a murderer and he leads God's people out of slavery. 
David is the youngest of all his brothers and he's chosen to be king when it's usually the oldest that becomes king. Paul went from being the foremost persecutor of Jesus to the foremost promoter of Jesus. I could list dozens more. And we're looking at unlikely hero today in Judges 3. So let's read it together. We'll start in verse 12 and we'll end in verse 30. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, and not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. All men are like grass, their glory like flowers in the field, the grass withers and the flowers fall. 
That was embarrassing, right? Uh, We just read an R-rated section of scripture. Sorry, kids. And you would expect God to have higher standards than this, wouldn't you? You have a fat king, fecal matter, blood and gore ooze out of God's holy word. Really, it sounds uh, like lunch talk with preteen boys. But this is in the Bible. And we are a people who believes that all of God's word is equally inspired. And since we believe that, mean, that means we have to deal with confusing texts. Texts that we disagree with at first. And yes, even texts that make us blush. And there's a reason that these details, these crude details are in here. And we'll get into that. But for now, allow your embarrassment. Don't swallow your embarrassment. Don't soften the text by allegorizing it. See, our duty is to receive God's word, crude details and all. And what we'll see in this text is really, we'll see a plan in verses 12 to 15. We see a conflict in 16 to 25 and then victory. 26 to 30. Those are my three points, plan, conflict, and victory. So the plan, uh, the plan in verses 12 to 15 is similar to the other 12 cycles that we find in Judges. There are 12 Judges that we see in this book, and there's really four steps that happen in each, of, in, in, in each cycle. See, what was going on in, when we get to the book of Judges is we have to remember what happened this few books before. We have Exodus. In Exodus, the people of God were in slavery uh, they, they are delivered from their slavery and, uh, and they wander around. That's, that's, Levit- that's part of Exodus, that's Leviticus, that's Numbers, that's Deuteronomy. And then in Joshua, they cross over into the promised land. And Joshua goes about and he's, he, he, he's slaying other, other nations in the book of Joshua, but not all of them. There are still some foreign nations in their promised land Uh, that are a threat to them. And they're a threat really on two levels. The first is on a military level. Some of the the nations that are still within the bounds of their land uh, that that are physically more powerful than them, they they could kill them. They could take back the land that they do have from them. So they're a military threat, but they're also a spiritual threat. See, these other nations that they worship other gods besides the God of Israel. So that's a threat, that that, that these other gods could compete with the God of Israel for their affection. So what we see in in these cycles, there's really four steps. First is, uh, we see that God's people turn from him and they serve idols. Then we see that God comes in and he judges them by sending an, an oppressive surrounding nation to judge them. Then God's people cry out to God. Thirdly and lastly, God answers their cry. And gives them a savior, a deliverer. And we see this with Ehud. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It says it twice there in his first couple of verses. That evil was their worship. Because they worship pagan idols. Well, the second part of the cycle is that he raises up a foreign nation, Moab, with King Eglon to punish them. And this Moab, they punished Israel for 18 years. 18 years. And God's people cry out to God in verse 15. And God raises up Ehud. Ehud, verse 15. It's describing his lineage with son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, which Benjaminite, by the way, means son of the right-handed man. 
Then it says that he's left-handed. Well, to you and me, that might, not, that might be odd, but don't know exactly what that means. Well, it's a really big deal for the original hearers because left-handed translated really means withered right hand. Left-handed means withered right hand. So he is left-handed, but he also has a congenital defect. He has a clawed right hand, or maybe he's like Jim Abbott and doesn't have one at all. So this Ehud, this deliverer, he sticks out, doesn't he? He's out of place, and he's the last person you would think would do something heroic. So what is it about you that you think disqualifies you from being used by God? What is it that makes you feel out of place? Is it something shameful about your past? Maybe it's a physical condition like it was for Ehud. Perhaps it's a failed relationship. Perhaps it's the loss of a job. Perhaps it's financial woes. Perhaps it's your emotional state. Perhaps it's a compulsive, unhealthy habit. What is it that makes you out of place? What is your left-handedness? See, what this story tells us is that God is not only able, but he delights to use people in spite of their imperfection. What our imperfections, what they do is that they remind us that we're we're not God and they make us pray. In some ways, they're a gift. But we hardly view our imperfections as a gift, do we? Rather than view them as a gift, we have immense shame about our imperfections. The acknowledgement of our imperfection just induces shame and shame leads to hiding those imperfections and then we ignore them altogether. See, we know we're not perfect. We'd all admit that, but we sure do want others to think that we are. Someone might find out about our physical ailment, about our job loss, about our struggling relationship and they might say, Oh, when confronted with it, it's not a big deal. Lots of people have it way worse than me. I'll get over it. Why do we use those kind of vague words and expressions to gloss over our imperfection? Why do we live in fear that we'll one day be discovered, known, exposed, and then humiliated? It's because we know we're a mess. But we're hoping against all hope that no one finds out. This week I've, uh, has led me uh, to think about the humiliating moments in my life, about my left-handedness per se. So I kind of feel honestly a little bit of a, I've got a very mild PTSD standing in front of you after being with this text all week. And I remembered some things. I remembered, uh, I remember middle school not making the basketball team. Lots of people ask me, since I'm 6'5", you must have played basketball. Nope. I tried. I remembered getting my first C, not B, C uh, for me, and I hid my report card from my parents. Uh, I remember being uh, rejected by Jenna once and twice, three times, and being really embarrassed by it. Not just hurt, but embarrassed. 
I remember being in this church just a few years ago, going through the ordination process and failing my ordination exam. See, the truth is, uh, these are just some of the ones uh, that I came up with. They're the ones that are appropriate for sharing in a large public audience like this. But the more I reflected on them this week, the more I saw God's grace in my life. And I realized that this is the pattern of God. He uses flawed people to accomplish his purposes. Dan Allender, in his book, Leading with a Limp, he says, here's God's leadership model. He chooses fools to live foolishly in order to reveal the economy of heaven, which reverses and inverts the wisdom of the world. He calls us to brokenness, not performance, to relationships, not commotion, to grace, not success, end quote. So are you down with God's plan this morning? It was his plan for Ehud and his plan for you and for me. That's the plan. Let's look at the conflict, verses 16 to 25. Uh, Verses 12 to 15 are a bit odd, but verses 16 to 25 are, are, are gruesome. Ehud, we see that he takes this short, two-edged sword and he straps it to his right thigh. See, swords were always carried on their opposite side, so a left-handed person would holster their sword on their right side. So the plan was is that he's going to take tribute to King Eglon, and this tribute is a gift, and he goes alone. I think it's odd that he goes alone, that he's the only Israelite in this exchange. I think part of it's strategic for Ehud, but I also think part of it is is how valued the Israelites really thought he was. It was their own estimation. They say, this guy with the rather white hand, he doesn't have a chance. So why waste manpower on this person who's not going to perform anyways? So he gets, uh, he gets to, the court, to the courtroom to be with Eglon, and they have these attendants, and surely they would, they would pat down someone like this, but not when you have a withered right hand. They weren't going to check him for a weapon. Why bother? So Ehud goes into the king's court. He presents his gift. And then he's on his way out and he says, hold on, king, I have a secret message for you. Can I share it with you alone? So yes, Ehud doesn't have any of his people with him, but there are attendants. There are some Moabites, there are some Eglon's people that are in the room during this exchange. And Eglon agrees. He sends out all of the attendants. And Ehud has Eglon right where he wants him. Ehud starts his message. He says, I have a message from God for you. The king leans in to hear it and he gets the message in the form of a sword to the gut. And the stab, according to our text, causes him to have a bowel movement. I know it's not a pretty picture, but it's there and it's a key detail. So Ehud leaves the chamber, closes the doors, and he locks them behind him. And I'm sure as he's passing some of Eglon's attendants, as he departs, they're just assuming that this man with a withered right hand has come alone, he's given a gift, he's had a polite visit with Eglon, he's, he, he, he is not a threat whatsoever, he's leaving to go home. But it's taking Eglon a long time, it stinks. So they go in and they find him and they find him dead. And by the time that they go in there, 
enough time has passed that Ehud is out of enemy territory and he's back home in safety. So do you see the satire of this chunk? This chunk is, is, is calling Eglon fat. And the details on his death are meant to show just how overweight he was. Then we see that he's not just, over, that he's not just overweight, tremendously overweight, that he's really dumb. He was willing to be left alone with a member of a group that his people are oppressing. Who would do that? A buffoon would do that. And so the original Jewish hearers would have chuckled and said, that's right, that evil king walked right into that booby trap. But do you see what was also essential for Ehud's defeat of Eglon? It was his weakness. If he would not have had a withered right hand, if he had two proper hands, he would have been patted down and his sword would have been found. So if you can imagine Ehud, as he's either been chosen or he chooses himself to be this person who's going to try to defeat Eglon, he's scheming. And he decides not to disguise his withered right hand, but to leverage it. So this took imagination. And see, that's, this is how leaders, here's how they come to be. They're not born, they're not trained, they're imagined. Leaders have to imagine how God is going to use their weakness to achieve his victory. And we need imagination like this to see how God might take what others and even ourselves, what we think disqualifies us and how God might use it as an asset to lead others and make known his gospel. We have to move from naming our particular weakness to imagining how God might use our weaknesses for his purpose. So how might God use your weakness for his purpose? I don't know. That's going to take you going before the Lord. That's going to be you going to people who know you well. You risking being vulnerable in front of them and asking them, what is my weakness and how might God use it? But I can give you one surefire way that God will use your weakness. Let your particular weakness be known so that others with that same weakness might feel at home when they get here. If you've been through a divorce, let it be known so that we can connect those hurting from a divorce with you so that you can struggle with them. Are you struggling with an addiction? Let it be known so that we can connect others with an addiction with you so that you can struggle alongside together. Do you have a wayward child, a learning disability? The list goes on and on and on. If we let those be known, then we can be a community of strugglers who really need the Lord. We can be a community of left-handed people that God wants to use instead of people who hide. This is the conflict. And then we see the victory. Verses 26 to 30, the victory has just begun to unravel. You have Ehud defeating the most powerful person, but there's still all the other Moabites. In fact, that detail in our text says that there's 10,000 of them that were defeated. And do you see the words there? In verses 26 to 30, it says that these 10,000 people were strong, able-bodied soldiers. You know those adjectives are meant to show the difference between the Moabites and Eglon, don't you? It's the weak person who kills the strong, able-bodied people. And here's Ehud. He comes back from this meeting with Eglon. 
he takes out a trumpet, he blows it. And you know, the rest of the Israelites are shocked that this nobody, this out of place, this altogether odd representative has actually won. And now he leads them to do the same. It's quite a story. It would make for a good show, wouldn't it? But this peace that was achieved over the Moabites only lasted for 80 years. And this is a story with each of the judges. There was only peace as long as the judge was alive and ruled over them. See, Ehud was incomplete. If he were the real hero of the story, then there would be a moral. And the moral would be, whoever we are, if we're humble enough, God will use us. But but Ehud is not the hero of this text. Ehud points to a much more unlikely hero. This hero was one from whom we hid our faces. This hero was from a historically despised race. This hero refused the sword. This hero did not fight back to prevent himself from being crucified. And his name is Jesus. How could he achieve victory? How could he achieve victory when he refused to fight and when he was hated by those he came to save? How did that happen? It's because his voluntary weakness was his greatest asset. See, Jesus had voluntarily, he he, he voluntarily chose to become like us in our humanity so that he could be our substitute. You know the kind of step down that was for him? He was used to being in the perfect community of the Trinity. He was used to being adored by angels. And now he's going to be born in a barn? He's going to take on the limitations of being a man? Yet it was this weakness that opened up the door for victory and for our salvation. So friends, don't despise his weakness. Embrace him. And to to the degree that you embrace Jesus and his voluntary weakness will be the degree that you're able to embrace yours. So let me apply this to two groups of people. Those who are like, gosh, I'm glad there's other strugglers out there like Ehud. (laughs) I'm ready to sign up with them. if, If you're one of those people, you're saying, I know I don't amount to much. If that's you, you need to know that you and God are a majority. And he wants to exalt you. So name your weakness. Imagine how God might use your weakness to lead to gospel victory. Invite people in on the journey. Ask them what they think your weakness is. And dream with them about how God might use it. But maybe uh, you're thinking... uh, I know, I know I'm a sinner. I know I have pain in my life, but I can't tell you exactly what they are. I can talk about it in a general sense, but not in a specific. Here's my prayer for you, that God would convince you of your folly. If you can't think of what your specific weaknesses might be, then you're boastful in your strengths. Your strengths are what are uppermost in your gaze. And this is a really scary place to be. And God will bring you to a place of weakness unless you choose to go there yourself. Yes, God is faithful to provide for us, but he's even faithful to make us humble. 
See, friends, if we fail to face our weakness, then we're going to have to live with fear and hypocrisy. It's going to leave us defensive, fake, controlling people instead of humble, honest, and loving people. So who are we as God's people? We're heroes and we're fools. We're saints and we're felons. Let's pray together. Jesus, we must confess. It's hard for us to embrace a Savior who's voluntarily weak. Because that means we must follow him and to being voluntarily weak ourselves. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you convict us of our pride? Would you, with your mighty right hand, pick us up from despondency? Do this for your glory, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.